All right, well, you have already found your seat, so please grab your Bibles. Um, what I wanted to do at the beginning here this morning is uh, spend some time asking a question that if you've done any reading of Shakespeare or the classics, it might sound familiar if you're at all familiar with Hamlet. But what I want to do here this morning is to ask ourselves this question, to judge or not to judge. Last week in our text, the Apostle Paul says very clearly, judge those inside. Don't judge those outside. He'll say today in our text that there should be judgments made. But this word judge doesn't just show up in chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's actually been all over the place through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. But then how do we make sense of this command, of Paul's command last week to judge, in light of what Jesus said, where he said in Matthew 7, judge not. Paul himself will say in Romans 14, don't judge. So there's this question that persists is as to what are we supposed to do? To judge or not to judge? I think if we didn't dig a little deeper, we might just find ourselves a little unaware of exactly what we are to do in regards to this. And so I just want to take a few moments here this morning and try to just answer that question. Maybe it was not a question you were asking, but I think it's a good one nonetheless. And as we get into our text this morning regarding lawsuits between believers, it's going to help us understand on what basis do we do this judging thing and or do we not do that? So, before we go any further, let's spend some time and pray. And then we'll try to unpack this question, which kind of, we're just sliding into the text in 1 Corinthians. But then we're going to get to chapter 6 and unpack this section about lawsuits between believers. So, join me. Father God, thank you again for the morning. And thank you for the opportunity to gather. And God, we want to be people who understand your word. God, we want to be people who know what it says, know how it applies, knows how to apply it, and then does so with love, kindness, faithfulness. And so God, I pray that you would help us to that end this morning as we come to your word, as we, as we think about in a big picture sense this, this idea of judging and how it may seem on the surface that there, there's some contradiction in what has been written. God, help us to think well, help us to understand what it is that you have revealed to us and what it is that you would have us do in following you. And so God, we pray to that end. We pray that you'd help us to make sense of your word and know how it applies. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so to answer this question, we're going to have to dig a little deeper 
And I told you last week that I was not able to give you hard and fast lines of how our text last week would be applied. I really wish I could, but there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of nuance because it all depends on the context and the situation. And the, the same really is true for the answering of this question. And so I have four different ways... Perhaps you could say even four different sub-questions to ask that might help us be able to get our minds wrapped around this idea or this question. Am I to judge or am I not to judge? So the first one is, am I using the right standards? To judge or not to judge, the maybe first sub-question to ask there is, are we using the right standards? If you're using the right standards, then the answer may be yes. If you're not using the right standards, then the answer is no. And Paul's been working us over in this as he wrote to the Corinthians and as we've been trying to unpack it. And and so some of the examples from 1 Corinthians 4 that he specifically gave where you cannot judge ministry effectiveness with worldly standards. You can't take... Nickels and noses as the sum total highest measure of evaluation of one's ministry effectiveness. The question is not, did they have more people in attendance this week than last week? And was the offering bigger this week than it was last week? And if, you, and if we boil down ministry effectiveness or the evaluation of it to that, we have gravely missed the mark. So to judge or not to judge, well, do we have the right standards of evaluation in place? We're not to judge as Americans. We're to judge or evaluate ministry effectiveness as Christians. There's a different set of standards. (coughs) I believe there's an implication in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as Paul unpacks you and I as God's building And builders, I think there's an implication in that text that we can, however, evaluate faithfulness. And there's nothing wrong in doing so. In that text, he actually says that Christ will one day judge our faithfulness. And there's nothing wrong in you and I asking questions regarding faithfulness. That's applying the right standards. It's part of what Jesus said where he talks about you'll know a healthy tree by its fruit. Is there faithfulness there? What's the outworking of that person's life and their teaching? See, it's not wrong to ask those types of questions of your leaders. And in fact, those are the types of questions that need to continually be asked of your leaders. Is there faithfulness? Are they committed to upholding the word of God and to loving people well? If that is the case, okay, we'll continue to follow So if you judge with the right standards, it's not incorrect to judge or to evaluate. And there needs to be evaluation, but we need to evaluate on the right things. Those aren't American ideals we place onto the church. Those are biblical ideals that we place onto 
the church. But let me give you a couple maybe more comical examples of not judging with the right standards. I remember in seminary in one of my classes sitting down with a professor who used to be a local church pastor who said we had, we had people in our congregation that demanded I wore white shirts only. And we sat there as seminary students. We kind of looking at them real puzzled and kind of wondering what in the world and, and why was it white shirts only? And he said, well, they told me that white was the color of holiness and the pastor couldn't wear anything other than a white button-down shirt. That's oh, not judging with the right standards. It's, it's missing the mark. And he used that as an example for us to help us navigate some of those those moments where there may be kind of odd requirements that are somehow unspoken rules that exist. And, and so there's a standard that it's not a biblical one by any means. Let me give you another one. And this, this, we won't actually experience this one this, more, or this evening because our communion bread will actually be the matzah that uh, has been just purchased, and we'll have that a part of the Seder. Uh, But normally when communion bread is baked, there are very specific rules or recipes. It's it's, it's kind of borderline rules, not so much a recipe per se, um, about what's to be done. And then I learned not too long after I got here that one of the things that had been said from a long time ago was that the flour was to be sifted three times. Because Jesus was in the grave for three days. And I kind of scratched my head and I go, you've got to be kidding me. Where do we get that? Like what chapter and verse are we putting together with that one? And, and it, you know, it, but it was just one of those, if we're going to make the communion bread the quote right way, it's got to be sifted three times and... Uh, that's not a right standard. So we can have really big things that matter a lot. We can have little, really little things. And, and in that same conversation, I was talking with Joyce, and I was like, you think we could sweeten that bread up a little bit? Like, can we maybe get a little bit more sugar put into that? And she's like, oh, yeah, we can do whatever. And I said, now, look, I need you to just be really clear when you write this down, because 40 years from now, I can't have anybody thinking that like, I put some spiritual significance to more sugar in the communion bread. Like I just want it to taste a little bit more like a Christmas cookie. If we can do that, that would be awesome. And, and so I, it's, not pro, it's not wrong to have some of these things. But we've got to be correct in how we think about these things. And some of the simplest things... If we're not careful, you can put a spiritual significance to and get yourself kind of all goofy in a hurry. Like we got to sift the flour three times or somehow something's not right. Eh. Pastor can only wear a white shirt or something's not right. Eh. Are we using the right standards? I think that's one of the first sub-questions that needs to get asked to judge or not to judge. Are we using the right standards? Second sub-question to ask ourselves is, is it being done in the right way? So any judgment or evaluation that does not reflect the fruit of the Spirit is out of step with the will of God. Now, in, in that sense, and there is a sense that you and I are always going to be out of step because we're going to be imperfect people. 
So I just want to acknowledge that, but I want to say that when we're asking this question, is this ding done in the right way, is it our aim to be in step and in line with the fruit of the Spirit, or are we just letting it all fly? Because if we're just letting it all fly, we're not doing it in the right way. It needs to be our aim. To do it with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. One of the reasons I choose to harp on kindness more often than even the word love, even though the word love leads off the fruit of the Spirit, is right now our culture has redefined the word love. And it's been popularly defined as you just let me do me. And you say yes to whatever I want to say yes to, and you don't get to say anything about that. Well, that, that, that's not a biblical definition of love. And there are some life choices that should not be said yes to, and it's the very antithesis of love if you cheer somebody on to that, because they're walking towards a path of destruction. But our culture is going to define the word love as just you celebrate what I want to do regardless of whatever it is, That's not a biblical definition of love. But at this point in time, kindness seems to have uh, not lost its moorings, perhaps we could say. To be kind to somebody hasn't been redefined, at least as of yet. And so that's one of the simplest ways I think we can ask that question. Are you being kind in how you are evaluating Is it being done in the right way? Jesus said to take the speck or take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's a part of doing it in the right way. And he was was speaking about and he was touching upon the, the, the inclination in our hearts that is, is rooted in sinful pride that wants to see your stuff as a bigger deal than my stuff. And Jesus isn't telling us to just ignore the stuff. He's saying you need to do it in the right way. Perhaps that becomes one of the ways that there is a difference between this idea of judging or evaluating and being judgmental. There's some significance And the difference there, are we judging in the right way? Are we using the right standards? Are we judging in the right way? Thirdly, is it towards the right people? There's a different evaluation given depending on who the person is. This was our text last week. Towards unbelievers, we need to understand that the gospel is bad news before it is good news. But it is equally bad news for all who sin, and it is equally good news for all who trust in Christ. And we need to not forget the good news part. We need to not forget the good news part. So towards somebody who's living a, a lifestyle of, of sin and a lifestyle uh, that's, that's just a contrary to what the Lord would have for them and they, they don't want anything to do with the Lord, I, there's an appropriateness to our 
obedience as gospel proclaimers to say, look, the road you're, your road you're walking down is going to lead to brokenness. And there's a creator that you're going to be held accountable to. And, and, and the, the penalty for your sin is death. But he sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. There's an appropriateness to saying both of those, the bad news and the good news. We need to make sure that we do a really good job saying the good news. It seems like what is most often characterized right now in the media and by the media, and maybe that's just a slant. Sometimes when you see some of the video footage, it's hard to conclude that it's just a slant. You can find yourselves with pictures or videos or signs of really angry Christian people that just want to shout about the bad news. And there's not a lot of good there. Now, the gospel is both bad news and good news, but don't forget the good. Cannot forget the good. I remember a conversation that I had with a former co-worker of mine when I worked at Applebee's. Her name was Vanessa. We called her Lady V. That's what she asked us to call her. And I remember sitting down with her um, between a double shift. And uh, so we had worked the whole lunch shift together. And then we got an opportunity maybe around 2.30 or so to get a meal before we cocked back in at 3.15 for the whole evening dinner shift. And I remember sitting down and talking with her, and, and I was a seminary student at the time, and, and Carrie and I were just, we were engaged, we were going to get, planning to get married, and, and I remember having this conversation with her, because she had only ever experienced really angry Christian people that wanted to point the finger at her homosexual lifestyle and tell her all of the reasons that God hated her. They did a really good job communicating the bad news and didn't really do a great job communicating the good and I said, well, Vanessa, you need to understand that, that this bad news, it's actually bad news for all who have sinned, not just all of one particular kind of sin. And so you need to understand that, that those who haven't lived that particular lifestyle, because of whatever sin they've got going on, are just as guilty before God and just as deserving of hell as anybody else. It's equally bad news. You know what? It's also equally good news because you haven't somehow sinned some unforgivable sin. You haven't somehow found yourself down a path that you're unable to repent from. And the gospel is equally bad news for all who have sinned, and it is equally good news for all who trust in Jesus. We can't miss that. So in that, in that idea of do I judge or do I not judge, there is an appropriateness to being able to have that conversation. Quite frankly, I think it, it, it doesn't need to happen shouting at anybody. Sitting down across a booth at an Applebee's between shifts where there was a relationship to whatever degree that we could have some of that conversation is a pretty good place to do it. Is it towards the right people? Towards believers, Paul said in our text last week, we need to have a very high standard for one another. We need to hold one another accountable. <coughs> we need to understand that unrepentant lifestyles and patterns 
of sinfulness matter. And they matter to the point where the church might have to get involved. Is it towards the right people? You have a different conversation with somebody who says, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to cheat on my wife than you do with somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus and says, I'm going to cheat on my wife. A totally different conversation. Is it towards the right people? Is it in the right way? Is it with the right standards? Fourthly, is it for the right things? I tipped my hand a little bit earlier. Wearing a white button-down shirt doesn't fit the category of the right things, nor does sifting the communion bread flour. But is it for the right things? And it's in this context that Paul would write in Romans 14, don't judge one another. He's talking about preference issues. He's talking about the differences in somebody's menu and what they would choose to eat or what they would choose to drink or how somebody would say, you know what, I'm going to set aside Sunday as a day that for, for, for our family, it's just we're not going to go out to eat. We're not going to do those things. We're going to set it aside and we're going to just pull back. He says, look, you don't judge one another on what you do regarding certain days of the week and what you do regarding certain items on your menu. But he also says, don't create a stumbling block for each other as well. And so if you have Sunday or Saturday, whatever a day of the week it is, the day doesn't actually matter. But if there's a day that you're saying, you know, for our family, that day is special and we're going to set that day aside and we're going to not do anything on that day and we're just going to pull back and that's going to be how we, we celebrate Sabbath rest in our family. Okay, so I don't get to judge you for choosing that day but you don't get to judge me for not choosing that day because it's a preference issue. So I don't, you don't get to create a stumbling block for me by demanding that I celebrate that day the way you do, but I don't get to turn around and say, you've missed the mark because you choose to celebrate that day. It's a preference issue. Music is another area that preference issues come screaming to the forefront. And if I, I thought about this uniquely this week in, in a completely different context and conversation, but it occurred to me this way for the first time that the idea of music is perhaps where we are the most diverse because every single one of us has different musical preferences. We all have different artists that we enjoy We all have different artists that we may not enjoy. We have different styles of music that we might enjoy or different styles of music that we might not enjoy. And and there is within the area and arena of music perhaps a unique preference for every single one of us. And then we do this thing where we get together and somehow have to set all of that aside. And it's like, no wonder we find ourselves just kind of grinding against that. And every church I've ever been in has grinded in this area of music, but it's a preference issue. And so for us, time and time again, we're just going to keep driving that back to what was the song about Jesus? Was the song in celebration for or in reflection of who he is and what he has done and how we might 
in turn follow him. Because there's something that, that, that's greater than did I like the way it sounded or did Mike hit a killer double bass beat or whatever that might be. And he does occasionally. And it's really awesome when it happens. But that's a style preference. Not everybody's going to appreciate that. Some are going to be more inclined to a Gaither style. Others of you might not get caught dead listening to the Gaithers. And you know what? That's okay. One's not better than the other. The question, though, is does it focus your focus on Jesus? And if it does, that's what matters. So is it for the right things? Believers are commanded to judge one another regarding sin and patterns of sinfulness. And believers are commanded to judge between one another in legal disputes. And that's where our text this morning picks up. And so let's go to verse 1 of chapter 6. We're not going to spend a lot of time in these verses this morning. But we are going to try to try to get our eyes and our focus on the, the rationale that Paul gives as to why these believers should not take one another to court. That's what I want us to see. Okay, I don't actually think any of us here have pending lawsuits between any of the rest of us here. So in that sense, this text might seem like it doesn't apply to us. But if we can try to unpack and see the logic he uses as to why this should not ever happen, there's a win there because the logic is actually really, really important. The reasons he gives for why lawsuits should not occur between believers is really, really important. So we'll be looking at verses 1 to 8. Let's go to chapter 6. I'll read it and then we'll just hop back through and try to unpack it. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So let's go back to verse 1 and we'll try to get our minds wrapped around what it is that Paul is giving be regarding just the logic there of lawsuits between believers. The first thing that I just want to point out to you is, is just the forcefulness of what he writes in verse 1. And it's a force that our English Bibles don't really capture. 
And it's the, it has to do with the word dare that shows up. And if your translation is like my translation, the word dare shows up about halfway through the first verse there. And he seems to be asking this question of, of, of you know, why would you dare go before unrighteous judges. Well, what, what's interesting is that in the Greek language, if you really want to make a point, you put the words that you want to stand out in a particular sentence at the beginning. And that's actually where the word dare is. It's the very first word in that sentence. If we were to literally translate the force of what Paul is trying to communicate, it's this, how dare you? That's a force not rendered by our English translations there. How dare you? That's what he's saying. How dare you do this, church? His strongest words yet have to deal with lawsuits. Not the sexually immoral man of the last two weeks. Not even the divisions in the church about what leader is better and what. Uh, it's not spiritual gifts. It's not food sacrifice to idols. It's not. It, his strongest words yet have to deal with this issue of the church going to the courts. How dare you? How dare you go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That word unrighteous literally means without justice. Now, it's a bit of a play on words because later in our verses, and I believe it shows up in verse 6, Paul's going to use the words unbelievers. There, literally, the word literally means without faith. The word unrighteous and the word unbeliever, is a, they're synonymous words. He's referring to the same people, but it's a bit of a play on words in the first category of those without justice because he's asking them, how dare you go to a judge who doesn't have justice? And there's a double meaning to it. They're unrighteous in the sense that they're without the righteousness of God, in that sense, unbelievers. But they're also unrighteous in the sense that as a judge, they're unrighteous without justice. Just think for a moment Paul's experience with the courts. Think of his experience in Corinth at a tribunal. You can go back and read some of Acts 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and his experience being tried. And then what happens with Felix and Festus and Agrippa. This is a man who had been scorned by the courts for a long time. But it wasn't just that experience that I think leads him to that. I think it's also just the acknowledgement of what these courts we're like. Let me read for you just a few brief sentences and statements by other historians and philosophers from this period of time. One says, lawyers innumerable pervert justice. 
Another says the courts will never commit any man, however guilty, if he only has money. Another, all of our judges nowadays sell their judgments for money. A lawsuit is nothing more than a public auction. And the juror who sits listening to the cases approves with the record of his vote what he has bought. There's a sense there in just even the commentary of those around this period of time that there was a lack of justice in the judicial system. How dare you then go? I think we have a judicial system that is not in any sense perfect, but I think probably a little further from what is written about here. But how dare you take these trivial cases? The word grievance that he uses there is a pretty nondescript word that actually can just generally apply to a variety of situations. His use of the word trivial, his use of the word things pertaining to life, his use of the word grievance here, I think add up and give us an indication that the type of lawsuits, the type of issues at play were what we would call today civil lawsuits. These were not criminal matters, these were civil matters. This was the the breaking of a contract. This was brother and brother with a dispute about their inheritance. And he doesn't even give the specifics of what it was. And so we can be left with just kind of assuming, which is dangerous. But the text seems to indicate that these are not criminal issues. These are civil issues. And it's in verses 2 and 3 that he gives his first line of argumentation as to why this is to not happen. And it has to deal with our identity. And it has to deal with our identity of those who have been completely enriched and those who have been gifted in every way or not lacking any gift. It has to do with his desire that we would reign as kings or the Corinthians would actually reign as kings, that they wouldn't have the need for Paul to correct them, that they would understand who they are in Christ and be able to live out of that and correctly make decisions and evaluations. And he's seeing that to apply here. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? He's going to make a similar statement in verse 3. Do you not know that you're going to judge angels? Now what he doesn't do is to tell us how exactly we're going to judge angels or how exactly we're going to judge the world. That doesn't seem to be the point. The point's to not explain the details of this particular end times argument he's making. The point is to say, look, just think about this for a moment. If God's going to use you, church, to render judgment on the activities of the angels, why are you incapable of rendering correct judgments on the activities of one another? That's the argument he's making. And it's grounded in this idea of our identity 
as believers, who we are. If we might understand that more fully, we would be able to walk more in obedience. It's the exact argument he makes last week. Cleanse the leaven from among you as you already are. He wants our actions to follow our position. And we see that line of argumentation show up again. Verse 4, if you have such cases, such trivial cases, such things pertaining to life, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. Here we have the second line of reasoning given, and it's this. You're a family. And that language of brothers is used a lot in this particular section. In particular, verses 5 and 6, and it's purposeful. And Paul is saying this, you're a family. Now, in first century Roman culture, which the Corinthians were, they were Greek by ethnicity, but Corinth was a Roman colony. So their, their, their nationality was in part marked by Rome significantly. In first century Roman culture, it was considered highly inappropriate for there to be inter-family lawsuits. One philosopher, historian, wrote this, do not allow brothers to engage in litigation and settle their differences in a proceeding involving different charges of conduct. The second line of reasoning he gives as to why It is out of step with the will of God for believers to have lawsuits with other believers is because you're a family, and that's not what families do. Now, some families do do that, but it's not to be what should take place. And I don't know if you've ever experienced or if you've ever witnessed, you've ever just maybe even heard some of the horror stories of families arguing and fighting and bickering, usually around money, and unfortunately after the death of a relative who might have had significant resources, it's devastating. It's devastating when, when, when the sum total of that relationship those family members have can be broken in an instant over a dollar or a thousand. Or 10,000, or a car, or a truck, or whatever it might be. And when you understand it and you kind of put it in and frame it in that light, it's devastating when your relationship with somebody who you have as as a family relationship with can be boiled down and broken by stuff. And here's what he's saying. You guys are a family. This isn't what families are supposed to do. 
your depth of a relationship with one another needs to go way beyond what monetary resources there might be. Lastly, verses 7 and 8, we see his third point of reason. And it's just this, why not suffer wrong? I added the words, like Jesus. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat before you've even gotten to court, before any judge or jury has rendered a verdict, you've already lost. Regardless if you win or not, you've already lost. Why not suffer wrong? Why not choose to be defrauded? Why not value the other person and the church and this idea of you as a part of a family so highly that if it means you take a personal loss so that you don't maim the church and discredit the name of Jesus, that, you know what, you will. Why not suffer wrong like Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality of God something to be grasped but rather taking on the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men, he became obedient even to death on a cross. In his last line of reasoning, why not suffer wrong? Why not be willing to be defrauded? Is this question, why not do what Jesus did? Why not let this gospel affect this part of your daily lives. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Why don't you be a little bit more like Jesus? To walk down this road of litigation and and, and, and perhaps even way before we might even get there, I'll say this, to, to, prior, to, to prioritize money or whatever it might be, stuff, as more important than a relationship you have with a brother or sister in Christ. It is out of step with the gospel. It is out of step with your identity As a believer in what Christ has done in you, it is out of step with this family that he has created us to be. So the the logic behind this is significant, even if none of us are going to court tomorrow. Because this gets after our very fundamental understanding of what is the gospel and who is Jesus and what demands does the gospel place on my life? Remember our big idea of the first one from last week? The gospel demands that all of us give all of us. We don't get to pick and choose. Now, it may come as no surprise that there are not any songs about lawsuits between believers. Couldn't find one. Damien and I sat down Tuesday. He's like, you got a closing song? Nope. I don't, don't have any songs about going to court against your brother. So we're going to segue into a song about Jesus and what he has done and where our hope is found because that's where our focus should go. 
That's what matters most. Guys, will you come up and lead us? Will the rest of you stand? And as you're doing, I'm going to pray. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand more and more of who you have created us to be, this new unleavened lump, these people that have been made new. And God, may we make decisions today and tomorrow and Tuesday and next week and next month based on that. May we be known as those who follow you well. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.